Then we'd like to turn to the book of Romans in the New Testament, Romans chapter 3. Romans 3, and I'm going to read from the first verse. What advantage then is there in being a Jew, or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, they have been entrusted with the very words of God. What if some didn't have faith? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every man a liar, as it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I'm using a human argument. Certainly not. If that was so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as we are being slanderously reported as saying, and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result. Their condemnation is deserved. If you've been with us as we've been looking through these uh, early verses in Romans, you'll know that Paul is introducing himself to the people in Rome. He's shortly to visit them. He's explaining the message that he preaches everywhere. And he's saying that this gospel, this good news, God's announcement is about a righteousness that comes to us from God by faith. A righteousness not that we produce through endeavoring to conquer things in our lives and get better and better in every way. That won't work. He's saying we need a righteousness that God gives to us and it is simply received by faith, by believing in Jesus. In chapter 1, verse, verses 16 and 17, he sets that out. And he is obviously aware that this message is something of which some people will be ashamed. It humbles you to have to admit that you can't be good enough for God, that there's no way that we can claw our way up to kind of God's level. We need God to come to us and to freely give us righteousness. Some will be ashamed of this, and hence Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, I'm not ashamed of this message. It's something that is not readily acceptable to humanity. People rebel against it uh, and come up with all kinds of reasons why it can't be the case. And that's what Paul is dealing with in these verses now, in chapter 3, as we began to see last week. He's dealing with the kind of objections that he knows from his experience people bring against this message. And he wants to clear these things out of the way so he can get to the substance of the message, which he does in verse 21 of chapter 3. I commented last week that uh, if you want to swing an axe at a tree, you have to get rid of the undergrowth around. Otherwise, as you swing the axe, it can hit on something else and you can have a nasty accident. I happen to say that that was a kind of uh, picture that, that men here could appreciate and women probably couldn't. Since then, a number, a frightening number of women have come to me and told of their experiences swinging an axe. I tell you, we've got some fearsome people amongst us here. Anyway, be, be that as it may, things need to be cleared out of the way if we're to get to the real substance. And Paul is getting this stuff out of the way so he can get to the substance. 
And he raises some more of these things in verses 5 through to 8, the verses that we will be looking at this morning. But in the midst of that, in verse 5, he's raised a question that people bring. And then it says in brackets in the NIV, I am using a human argument. Literally, I am speaking as a man. Or I'm speaking according to men. I'm speaking as men do. And that little aside, as he apologizes, as it were, for some of these things, I'm speaking as a man. That's really the key to the section. And we'll come back to that because it's ever so important. It explains why Paul is raising all of these things. As I say, we will come back to it. But let's look, first of all, at the issues that are raised, the questions that he deals with. The first one is in verse 5. If our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say that God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? So we said the gospel is about God's righteousness. Chapter 1 verse 17 says that in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. The good news is about God's righteousness, which we need because of our unrighteousness. Everyone has sinned. We have all sinned. Our copybook is stained. We dare not, as we are, come before God. We never can be good enough. The gospel is about God's righteousness. So our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly. It's because of our unrighteousness that this righteousness from God is revealed. That's why it is necessary, because of our sin. In, later on in this chapter, in verse 20, he's going to say, Therefore no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law we become conscious of sin. But now, a righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known, to which the law and prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. All have sinned, and so on. So the gospel is about a righteousness that God gives. He gives that righteousness because of our unrighteousness. And so it's our unrighteousness that actually reveals his. That's the question. If our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? The height, ultimate human unrighteousness was in murdering the Son of God. Having the Son of God crucified, that is ultimate sin, ultimate unrighteousness. And yet, in the sovereignty of God, at that moment of ultimate sin, God's righteousness is most clearly seen. And that's where God's righteousness is made available to us at the cross, where Jesus dies bearing our sin to make it possible for us to know God. Our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness. It has done it in history at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the question is, aren't we in a way doing God a favor? Doesn't our unrighteousness enable him to actually bring this gospel and this gospel promotes his glory? So it's not fair for God to punish us. God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us. That's the question. So, 
And the, the us and so on, our unrighteousness, Paul seems to be speaking there about the Jews. In verse 1, he said, what advantage then is there in being a Jew? It's as if a, a Jew is to say, the Jews, in crucifying the Son of God, secured the way of salvation. So it's a bit unfair to punish them, isn't it? First question. Second question in verse 7. Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? This is going back to what it said in verse 4 about let God be true. God is true. He keeps his word. His word is utterly reliable. We are liars. We don't keep our word. We promise things and we don't do it. That's the human condition. But God is true. God is always right. So if my falsehood, my tendency to always get it wrong, to promise things and not keep my promises, if my falsehood shows up more clearly how wonderfully faithful God is, you see how clean something is when you put something dirty alongside. Our, 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 our falsehood shows up his wonderful faithfulness. So surely we're enhancing his glory. So why are we still condemned as sinners? Good question. And the third thing he deals with in verse 8, why not say, and here he knows Paul knows that he is misreported as saying this kind of stuff. This is the word that goes out. This is the spin that people are putting on his gospel. Let's do evil that good may result. Now that's a kind of understandable misunderstanding. Because, well, let's look at what Paul says in Romans chapter 5. Romans 5 and verse 20 says, Where sin increased... Grace increased all the more. Where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So someone might say, oh, so we want more grace, then we need to sin more. The more we sin, the more grace. Where sin increased, grace increased all the more. He then raises that again in chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? That's how people misunderstood what he was saying. And people always misunderstand the message of grace like that. If we teach about grace, there will be those who will say, so it doesn't matter what you do then. It doesn't matter what you do. God loves you anyway, so who cares? Let's sin and God will still love us. Grace, people say, surely that leads to just laziness. People have always misunderstood it like that. They misunderstood Paul like that. They misunderstood the other apostles like that. The apostle Jude in Jude um, verse 4 says, Certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They're godless men who changed the grace of our God into a license for immorality. That's it, changing grace into license. People have always misunderstood it like that. And so Paul again says, uh, why not say, let's do evil that grace may result. So three objections. Is God unjust when our unrighteousness has actually opened the way for his righteousness to be revealed? Is he unjust in punishing us? Why am I condemned, second thing, if God's truthfulness is shown by my 
sin. He, the, the quote there in verse 4 from Psalm 51, so that you may be proved right when you speak. If you look at it in Psalm 51, David there is confessing his sin. And the way he puts it is, I know my transgressions, my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak. It might seem as if my sin proves you right. And that's the thing. If my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness, why am I condemned? Second thing, and the third one, doesn't grace mean, well, let's just do evil? How does Paul answer it? Well, he answers it again with this, in verse 6, he says in the NIV, certainly not, or uh, as we saw in verse 4 last week, not at all, not on your life. No way. A strong, absolute rejection, categorical rejection. You cannot speak like this. And he answers it by saying, if that was so, verse 6, how could God judge the world? So what he's saying is, To his audience, no one denies the fact of ultimate judgment. Final judgment is a given. That is a non-negotiable. That is going to happen. If there's going to be final judgment, then these arguments that you're bringing can't be true. Clearly, God will judge, and God is right to judge. So he, he, he denies it totally, but he's raising the issues. Now we need to see the underlying issue. Why is he raising these things? Because on the face of it, most of these objections are pretty silly. And as we read it through, we think, well, yeah, okay, it's there, but what a bit of a silly argument, isn't it? Why does he, we might say, waste time dealing with these things? Well, then we come back to what he says in verse 5. I am speaking as a man. Or as it says here, I'm using a human argument. I speak as a man. These objections come from a human mindset. A purely human way of thinking. A way of thinking, and Paul knew it because he'd encountered it. A way of thinking that persistently misses the point. If there's a wrong end to the stick, you get it. Always not understanding, missing the point, getting the wrong end of the stick. This way of hearing things but grasping nothing, this inability to readily assent to anything that God says. Paul was aware that that was out there. He's heard all these things said. Surely that is why he's dealing with it. He says, this is the human response. This is the kind of objections that people come up with. I speak as a man. That's the, the human mindset. And it's everywhere. And in a way, understandable. God is spirit, the Bible tells us. We are flesh. There's a total distinction between God and us. Back in the Old Testament in Isaiah 55, very well-known words, very well-known, but I'll still look them up. Isaiah 55 um, and verse 8, says, God says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, 
As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. There is the gap between God's way of thinking and ours. He's on that level, we're on this. My thoughts, not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways. My ways are higher than yours. My thoughts, higher than your thoughts. Because of that gap, when God says things, we're down on that level and we're likely to just not get it. We'll hear the words, can't understand it. Get the wrong end of the stick. Think he's saying something else. Just can't get hold of it. That's our problem. And furthermore, in Romans chapter 1, Romans 1 and verse 21, Paul has already told us something else about our problem, why we can't get hold of this, that our thinking has become futile and our foolish hearts darkened. Not only are we on a different wavelength, but there's an inbuilt futility in our brain and our hearts are darkened. It's like God's put the light out. There's futility in our thinking and his ways are higher than ours anyway. So again, we're flesh, spiritually blind. We cannot get hold of it. Writing to the Corinthians, a, a church that certainly manifested this problem in a major kind of way. In 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 14, Paul puts it like this. The man without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit for their foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The man without the spirit doesn't accept, cannot understand. There's different wavelengths. Hear the words. What does it mean? So all of these kind of questions that he's dealing with in Romans chapter 3, these are the kind of things that get thrown at him. When Paul is explaining this wonderful gospel, people come up with this rubbish. Why? Well, because they're human. Because they're human. I'm speaking as a man. Can't accept, can't understand. Because the wonderful thing about the Bible is it not only tells us these things, it gives us stories to illustrate. If you go back into the Gospels, you see any number of stories that illustrate this kind of tendency. Look at Matthew chapter 16. Matthew 16. Well, to get the context, verse 39 of the previous chapter, Jesus sent the crowd away and got into the boat and went into the vicinity of Magadan. So they've got into a boat and traveled elsewhere. And then verse 1, the Pharisees and Sadducees come to Jesus and test him. Verse 5, when they went across the lake, the disciples forgot to take bread. Be careful, Jesus said to them, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. So there's a bit of teaching from Jesus. Remember, the Pharisees have just come and tested him, asking for a sign. And Jesus says to the disciples, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Next verse. They discussed this among themselves and said, it's because we didn't bring any bread. Totally missing the point. Jesus is talking about something that's just happened. They hear the words, get the wrong end of the stick. Because they're thinking, you know, as they went across the lake, they forgot to take bread. He's having a go at us. 
It's obvious he's having a go. We've forgotten to bring the sandwiches. He's saying this. Ooh, we're getting told off. Aware of their discussion, Jesus then starts to address the issue. And verse 12, then they understood that he was not telling them to guard against the yeast used in bread, but against the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. It's obvious, really. They, got, they misunderstood totally. I wonder, you know, the Gospels tell us a lot, but there's a lot the Gospels failed to mention. And I would love to know, I would love to know what the disciples told their wives when they got home. You know, they've listened to Jesus, they haven't understood a word of it, and they're going to go home, and wifey is going to say, what did he say? I wonder what garbled account, what strange teachings their wives got hold of. Because they just, if there was a wrong end of the stick to get, you could be sure they would get it. Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9 and verse 43 Uh, Sorry, verse 49. Master, said John, we saw a man driving out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he's not one of us. Don't stop him, Jesus said, for whoever is not against you is for you. Again, totally missing it. Safeguarding their thinking. That's what Jesus would want us to do. No, he doesn't. They've been around, but they haven't understood And then, verse 51, they're heading towards Jerusalem. He sent messengers on ahead and who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there didn't welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. There was uh, prejudice between the Samaritans uh, and Jerusalem. And uh, so the Samaritans wouldn't welcome them. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven and destroy them? Now, maybe they're mindful of John the Baptist. So there's going to come one after me who will baptize you with the spirit and fire. Lodge that away. Sometime, Jesus is going to baptize with fire. I wonder what that means. They're thinking, ah, maybe this is it. Do you want us to nuke them? (laughs) Jesus turned and rebuked them. They just don't understand. They haven't got it. He's trying to teach them, but they are just plain human. (laughs) Human. They're thinking as men. Luke 18. Luke 18 and uh, verse 31. Jesus took the twelve aside and told them, we're going up to Jerusalem... And everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be turned over to the Gentiles. They'll mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. On the third day, he'll rise again. Pretty explicit, really. Verse 34. The disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them. And they didn't know what he was talking about. Find that kind of encouraging. Jesus, obviously, the world's greatest teacher ever. And that's the response. And the fact is, 
when anyone stands to preach, there will always be those who are thinking, I don't understand any of this. I don't know what he's talking about. So if that's your reaction right now, let me say it's in the book. <laughs> that's how people respond. Just don't understand. What's this about? Don't know what he's talking about. And of course, you can't look at all of that without seeing the finale, really, in Luke's Gospel, Luke 24, verse 45. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the Scriptures. It happened at last. Finally, he opened their minds so they could see what it was all about. That's how people respond. And so Paul says, I'm speaking as a man. He's dealing with all of these things because he's had these objections raised I guess it was frustrating, but he knows this is how people respond. And so he heads it off by dealing with these things, knowing that that's what they will be thinking. The features of this thinking like a man or speaking like a man, we we see it here, obviously, fault-finding. This glorious gospel of grace gets these responses. If our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness, isn't God unfair? Think, oh, it's stupid. Well, no, fault-finding, nitpicking is a human response. When anything new is taught, there will always be those who nitpick. They're missing the point, and they're, pick, they're, they're picking up things that are not really being said, and, and effectively blame God. Isn't God unjust? It's not fair. Why does God do that? That happens. Secondly, pushing things to extremes. Verse 8. Let's do evil that good may result. It's a very common response where people hear something and then they say, oh, so what you're saying is, and you know that the moment someone says, so what you're saying is, That is exactly what you're not saying. So this gospel of grace, we're forgiven freely. We cannot earn salvation. It is freely given. Oh, that means it doesn't matter how we behave then. No, it doesn't mean that. Pushing things to extremes. Again, there's an example of that in the Bible, a story. John chapter 3. A man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council, quite a dignitary. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you're doing if God were not with him. So the seal of approval from this man. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. Now, Nicodemus clearly hasn't a clue what Jesus is talking about. So look at the response. How can a man be born when he's old? Surely he can't enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. See what I mean? Pushing it to an extreme. Got to be born again. Are you saying I've got to get into my mother's womb again? Clearly he's not saying that. But the way to deal with something you don't understand, push it to a ridiculous extreme. So what you're saying is, and so people do that, anything radical in Scripture. So maybe if we were talking, 
We're talking about raising children. And if we use some of the Bible verses and spoke about the need to physically chastise your child. Oh, so what you're saying is child abuse, is it? What you're saying is we beat the living daylights out of the poor little thing. No. (laughs) But push it to an extreme. You push it to an extreme, you don't have to do it. Or look into the New Testament. Wives, submit to your husband. Oh, so what you're saying is always right. I've always got to do everything he says. No. It's always this, make it ridiculous, then you don't have to do it. And that's what's happening here. Let's do evil so that good may result. Another feature of this thinking like a man, as we said, is just missing the point. Missing the point totally. And all of these things that are said there all miss the point. Another feature, a a sheer inability to understand. An inability to understand that could well be an unwillingness to understand. Because our minds play tricks on us. We just think, I don't get this. But actually, it could be, I don't want to. Because this threatens the way I live. This threatens what I believe. This threatens my value system. I just do not want to understand this. Paul says later on in chapter 8 and verse 7, Translated here, the sinful mind, it should be the mind of the flesh, is hostile to God. It doesn't submit to God's law, nor can it do so. There's this inbuilt hostility. I don't want to agree with this. It's not that I can't understand it. I don't want to understand it, because if I do understand it, it's going to lead to some costly change. And I don't want that. The the mind of the flesh is hostile to God. And I guess... A major element as well is just simple pride. Pride. It's easier to ridicule than to admit you're wrong. It's easier to reject something than to admit you don't understand and you need someone to explain it. So you get the story there with Nicodemus. He is a dignitary. Maybe in his thinking... Jesus is going to be ever so grateful that he, Nicodemus, has come to Jesus and said, we recognize you're a teacher come from God. Maybe he's expecting that Jesus will be deeply honored to have him in his house and will say, oh, thank you so much. I I really find that so encouraging. And Nicodemus can go away thinking, well, I've done something good. Okay, I came at night so no one should see me, but never mind. Instead, Jesus says, you're not going to see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. Nicodemus is totally stopped in his tracks. What does this mean? He's the big man, the member of the Jewish ruling council. He has come to this Nazarene carpenter and given him the seal of approval. And this jolly upstart has the sheer effrontery to say something that he, Nicodemus, doesn't understand. Can Nicodemus humble himself to say, please explain that to me? No, no, you can't get back in your mother's womb again. Pride, pride. So often we miss the point. We react as men because we're too proud to admit our need. Now, Paul here is writing to Christians. Makes that clear in chapter 1. 
Verse 7, to all in Rome who are loved by God and called saints. He's writing to saints, but he knows, because he's been around, he knows that Christians can still think like this. After all, he had spent time in the church in Corinth, and he knew how they had responded. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 1 Corinthians 3, he says, Brothers, I couldn't address you as spiritual, but as worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you're not yet ready for it. Indeed, you're still not ready. You are still worldly. For since there's jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? That's it. Acting like mere men. They're still on this human level, thinking as men, acting as men, and they're Christians. So Paul knows that in any church, there will always be those who get the wrong end of the stick, miss the point, argue back, just really cannot accept it. He knows that's the fact. And so he addresses these things here. He raises these things and says, I'm speaking as a man. I know this is silly. But people do react in this way. If then Christians can react like that, I have to ask myself, do I react like that? I have to ask myself, do I miss the point? Do I get the wrong end of the stick? Do I just dismiss something as ridiculous because I don't want to accept it? We all have to face that question. Is there any way that we can be sure we're not just acting and thinking and reacting like men? Well, yes, the Bible helps us in this. Even though we're not wired to understand God's ways, his thoughts are higher than ours, we can still understand. How can we? Well, first of all, God wants us to. God doesn't want us to miss the point. God doesn't want us to be forever living on a, a substandard kind of level where he's saying wonderful things and we just don't know what he's on about. That's not what God wants for us. He wants us to understand. He wants us to know the truth. He wants us the truth to do us some good, to bring us into the freedom uh, that he offers to us. He wants us to know the truth. That is helpful. That is, that is so encouraging. So how, what are the steps we can take towards making sure we understand God? I'd say step number one, admit our own stupidity. Many years ago, when I was in my 20s, um, I invited a very well-known speaker, very famous, famous at that time, uh, to come and speak at the church that I was leading. And to my total astonishment, he agreed and uh, said he'd come. And the Saturday evening came when this big speaker was going to be coming. Loads of people turned up. The church building was full. Everyone who should be there was there except one person, the speaker. And uh, I sort of would open the door at the front and look and the building is full. There's a kind of buzz getting near the time and it's just me, which is somewhat embarrassing. Then right at the last moment, right on time, the door opens and in this guy comes. I'm you know, overwhelmed to see him but because he's so important and such a big name, but also because he's actually come. And I said, oh, I think, right, let's, let's get into the meeting. He said, no, he said, uh, can we just pray? 
Sure. Uh, I'm a young lad of in my 20s, so I let him pray. I've never forgotten how he began the prayer. I can't remember the rest of it, but I've never forgotten the opening sentence. And his opening sentence was, Father, forgive your stupid servant. Because he'd, he'd taken a wrong turn and he'd got lost. And he's not trying to impress me. I mean, there's this young lad who's invited him and he could have been, you know, just, Lord, forgive your stupid servant. That phrase has stayed with me ever since. And I found as the years have gone by that I use it increasingly. God, forgive your stupid servant. It's easy to pray that prayer because I'm surrounded by the evidence that it's the right prayer to pray. But if we start there, Lord, I am an idiot. Lord, I am so stupid. I so easily go the wrong way. If we start there, half the issues are dealt with. Because the major issue is pride. I know best. God surely can't do that. God's unfair if he does that. God, I'm stupid. God, you're the God only wise. Lord, forgive your stupid servant. It's amazing. I, I never cease to be amazed, quite honestly, that God has chosen an idiot like me to preach. It's amazing. Doubtless you think it is as well. And you're right. So we start there, acknowledging we're stupid. And then we unreservedly submit to God. Paul outlines, really, in chapter 12, how we deal with this thing. And since it's going to be several years before we get to chapter 12, let's look at it now. I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Stage one, offer your body. That's, that's what you go around in every day, your life. Give yourself totally to God. So admit your stupidity, and then unreservedly give yourself to God. You see, that deals with the issue of, I don't want to understand because it will change my life. No, you say, Lord, my life's yours. It's yours, Lord. I'm likely to get it wrong, but I'm stupid. I therefore unreservedly give myself to you. We've dealt with most of the issues then. We're in a good place to understand God's will. And then Paul goes on there in chapter 12. Don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world. A determined rejection of worldly ways of thinking. Reminding ourselves continually. His thoughts, not our thoughts. His ways, not our ways. If something goes against the grain of what we've always believed, then God's right and I'm wrong. I'm rejecting the pattern of this world. The word pattern is something that presses things into shape and molds them. The world does that to you. The ways that people think. I'm rejecting that. I want to hear God. So admit our stupidity. Unreservedly give ourselves to God. Reject worldly ways of thinking. And then it says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Tells us to do it. Doesn't say this will happen to you. It says do it. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Well, how do we do that? Well, Paul had already mentioned that back in chapter 8. 
chapter 8 and verse 5. He says, those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. Those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. How do you renew your mind? Well, by living in accordance with the Spirit. Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, will you teach me? Holy Spirit, will you help me to know the mind of God? Holy Spirit, I want to learn to live with you. Be filled with the Spirit. It's a new way of thinking. The truth comes from God who is Spirit. Naturally, we, we say, oh, that's ridiculous. Oh, what you're saying is, you mean, do you mean this? We push things to extreme. We make it ridiculous. We let ourselves off the hook. We've got to stop thinking like that. So easy for these to be our normal, natural, knee-jerk reactions. So we're missing stuff. Just doesn't, you can't mean that. Oh, what you mean? No, 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 no. Fill me with your spirit, Father. I need you. And then Paul says, when we take those steps of giving ourselves unreservedly to God, rejecting worldly ways of thinking, being transformed by the renewing of your mind, then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. We'll assent to it. We'll agree with it. We won't say, oh, that's ridiculous. No, no, no. It's wonderful. I see it now. All those things at once, I said, I can't possibly do that. Or what you mean is, I now see it. And God's way is wonderful. It's beautiful. So satisfying. It's true. You'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. All those things that seemed so difficult. Mentioned examples like disciplining your children. In marriage, husband is the head of the wife. Wife, submit to your husband. You say, oh, it's difficult. No, 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 no. It's actually good, pleasing, and perfect. It's wonderful. Of other things, we've been talking recently a lot about what it means to be loyal in the church, what it means to be committed to the church. And so, oh, what you mean is, no, 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 no. Stop pushing it to an extreme. See, this is good, pleasing, and perfect. But you won't get there just using your natural mind. Just won't get there. You'll always get the wrong end of the stick. At best, you'll take hold of it legalistically. That's the most you can come up with. No, it's in the spirit. It's different. You need to come this way. Lord, I'm stupid. <laughs> I give myself unreservedly to you. I'm not going to think in human ways. Fill me with your spirit. Holy Spirit, come and teach me. Then, hey, God's will is wonderful. I approve of it. I assent to it. I want to do it. Paul is raising these things. They're silly arguments. You think, why does he waste time? Well, because he knows. He's been around a bit. He knows how people respond. These are not, in a way, they're not serious issues. And yet they are, because people raise them as objections. He says, I'm speaking as a man. You need to see that. Speaking as a man, we've got to say, well then, we don't want to think like that. We're not going to let that be the obstacle to us enjoying God. We're not going to misrepresent what God says. We're not going to misreport it. Our minds can be the biggest barrier 
between us and enjoying God. Between us and faith and enjoying liberating grace. It's all there, but it's the other side of a fence. And that fence is the way we think. Got to get that out of the way. Come in to so much that is good. We, all of us, surely, need to bring this issue before God. It's something that happens all the time. We lapse into it. We slip into it. I doubt there's anyone here who doesn't need to address this issue. Because we're human. We just get into it. And we find things, uh, just say, the other side of a fence. We want to break through the fence, don't we? We want to get into God's wonderful grace. We want to test and approve his will and say, it's good. I love your will, oh God. Jesus loved his Father's will. It's good. Let's not miss out and just get all kind of cynical. What they're saying is, oh, God, do this now. No, no, no. Hear it. Hear it. Let's pray.